Welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 85 for the week of April 26, 2015. On this week's episode, we're going to talk about organic GMOs. And no, that is not a contradiction in terms. We're going to talk about how police tell twins apart, and that is not the beginning of a bad joke. They actually can, quite simply now. Uh, should you be taking a multivitamin? There's some information on that. We can now edit our human genome, and we have done this, but should we? And... What should you eat before and after your workout? Very important questions. Uh, practical advice, which is something we don't do very often on the show, and we appreciate it. We got the regular crew today. We got Carolina Balkenbush. Our re- what are you? You're a registered dietitian <laughs> out of Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> what are I'm you? like, are you like, a, like my program got locked. <laughs> Hello, Carolina. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Who else do we have? <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you tell us? Uh, we have uh, Christian Copley-Salem, PhD candidate in cell molecular pharmacology up at the University of Nevada, Reno. Yay. Oh, you should do – I think you should do this more often. And who else do we have? <laughs> and Scott Barnett uh, with the same credentials and qualifications. <laughs> or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically, uh, this feel, it, it feels kind of like Catholic mass. It's like I've heard it so many times subconsciously that I can just say it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What a wonderful week. You know what I did yesterday? What did you do? I saw Ex Machina, which uh, have either of you heard of this? Nope. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's a hardcore science fiction nerd film. If you like science fiction and you like kind of weird uh, think pieces, um, this is absolutely mind blowing. I absolutely loved every second of it. You, you just, it's just see it. That's all I can say. If if those things apply to you, if you enjoy them, if you like rom coms with Adam Sandler and that's your primary film type, not going to be for you. But uh, <laughs> absolutely highly recommended. I'm still thinking about it. It's completely uh, a total mind melt, and I love it. Awesome. So, just so you know. Oh, I always forget. I want to say is. I'm putting out a new episode of the Poison Cast today. Yes. Set it at the top of the show, finally. Uh, this week it is Mustard Gas. I'm very excited about it. And uh, it's a little bit different how I did the show. But, uh, yeah, give it, a, give it a listen. By the time this is out, uh, or at least within a few hours, the, the uh, Poison Cast should be out. So, anyways, that's what I got. What did you guys do this week? Sweet. Um, uh, uh, I mm. went off my diet. I got diagnosed with hypertension. And I... Hi, gout, hypertension. Do we need to? Uh, you need to put your affairs in order, friend. Dude, I am forty. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Like three hundred years ago, you would you would be saying goodbye to the right. world right now. And actually, on the gout front, I had a blood test, and my uric acid levels are not high. So, um, so that means you don't have to take your non-specific COX inhibitor. Well, I only take that for inf- for the, like actual outbreaks for inflammation anyway. And she said that it's probably. Um, was a transient event, which is why I've never had that problem before. Um, and she said 40 is the age where that kind of stuff peaks. So, But is it a canary in the coal mine scenario where it's like it's transient, but you, you need to we, we need to watch this no, sort of thing? No, because uric acid levels being super high is sort of a, a lifetime thing. Like the reason you get gout is because your uric acid levels have been high your whole life and these crystals have built up. Um, it's not something okay. that you build up these giant crystals that hurt you in an hour, you know, but 
she said it can happen like the you can get a small amount of crystallization and it can irritate your body if you had a, an increased level for a little bit and then it goes away so i don't know um but yeah so that's not so bad but the hypertension is kind of concerning since everyone in my family died of heart disease so um in but she said she she said just cut out your salt like it's not um it's not over 140 over 80 uh-huh mm-hmm. which that's like the line. She's like, you're right at the line for terrifyingly bad and not so bad. I'm like, okay, well, that's good. <laughs> my, my diastolic pressure is still 80, which uh-huh. is good. Like the pressure in my cardiovascular system when my heart is not beating is normal. Right. It's, my, it's the beat pressure that's high. It's 140. Usually you get like 140 over 90. Because, and, and that's, that's normal. really bad on both ways. Yeah, uh-huh. that's bad. But then I have this weird 140 over 80. So she's right. like... Let's just take your blood pressure for a while and see what happens. So, that's Go good. team. I consistently get 140 over 80. So, Carolina, are you uh, surviving your the the, the windstorm? <laughs> yes. <laughs> if, if any of our plants in the backyard blow over, we will rebuild. I was actually thinking about um. <laughs> you you might wake up in Oz. <laughs> might yes. Or in Reno, that'd be so nice. Um, <laughs> we were thinking about getting these like little um, rolling planter holders for our, our patio to block some of the sun. Because since we face west and we have nothing behind us, it's kind of unpleasant to sit out in the backyard in the afternoon. It gets too sunny. Um, but with <laughs> with the winds, I think that we would have plants like flying all over the patio if we did that. So <laughs> might have to reconsider that. Smacked in the that. face with like a cactus. Yeah, but. Um, not a very exciting week. The highlight of it was uh, learning my blood type. That was kind of cool. My mom always oh. told me that it was A positive. I am, in fact, A negative. I'm A negative, too. Look at that. It's only, I, uh, they say only like 6% of the population has that. Oh, well, we're, I, I, maybe we could make some money on this. If I ever need a kidney, you know who I'm coming to now. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I forgot that goes both ways. <laughs> I'm used to taking. Um, good, good times. Well, uh, good banter session, folks. Adequate. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's that's always my favorite compliment. Yeah. <laughs> you were adequate, Carolina. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, good times. So, um, with that, why don't we move into our science blast? That was like the world's worst barbershop quartet ever. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'd say it was rather satisfactory, though, Scott. Yeah. Oh, good. Not just adequate. Yeah. 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 Wow. Whoa, what was that? Sorry, that was a chair. Oh. (laughs) I'm recording in the kitchen instead of on the. It sounds like you're like in an interrogation room at a police station. <laughs> Bang. Well, ah. It's a very oh. echoey house. Sorry. Indeed. Uh, I've got two really short ones and a, and a main one. Um, I'm going to plow through the two short ones, and if I don't get to my long one, I don't. But uh, uh, Wait, which one's the long one, though? The long one is with the GMO, organic GMO. Do <sighs> you really want to hear that yeah, one? Yeah, you should do that one. Okay, I'll do that one, and then the two short ones, maybe I'll have to, to push that. How about that? I want to hear them all. <laughs> Okay, we shall see. But, um, man, uh, who wants to go first? Does anyone want to go first? We want you to go Um, first, Scott. Yeah. Okay, I'll go first. Do you guys like sweet potatoes? Yes. I'm just kidding. I love (laughs) them. Yeah. I'm like, what alien planet are you from? That's 
that's a Turing test right there. Are you a human being or not? Like, do you like sweet potatoes? Like, it's, it's like starch and sugar. So uh, my favorite is a mashed sweet potato. You put a little brown sugar, a little bit of cream in there, and you take a hand blender and you get in there. Um, it's basically dessert. Have you guys ever done that before? <laughs> it just I have. From healthy to not. <laughs> it's, it, and you don't need that because it's naturally sweet. You don't need that much sugar. You don't need that much cream. But my God, it's it's. It, you put a little whipped cream on there, you would think someone was handing you like mm. dessert. Anyway, yeah, the most popular recipe on my blog is actually the sweet potato curly fries. Oh yeah, that's those yummy. are pretty good. Brandon uses them in savory recipes, so it gives it a little bit of a sweet tang to a savory idea. So yeah. Mm. Anyways, okay. sweet potato well, miracle food. Moving on. You guys have been <laughs> lied to by nature. I'm afraid to tell you here. Naturally, I'm assuming you guys are both very fearful of GMO foods, as you should be, right? No. okay well uh uh, being facetious um you know there's always people like to tout are they going to give you cancer you know you know is the world going to be overrun by companies like monsanto that produce gmo foods you know miss balkenbush you're going to have to get a permit to grow those vegetables in your backyard or the gestapo is going to put you in jail there's all these weird misconceptions about gmos and what they do and whether or not they should be bad we've talked about gmos several times in the past and we're not going to rehash all of that today but we got a little bit of a stick in the eye for people who think that uh, the idea of putting a, a gene in a plant is um, is unnatural and bad. So in PNAS, which if you don't know, I'm not mispronouncing penis, um, PNAS is the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. It's a very reputable and good journal. As a matter of fact, any scientist would probably be very proud to have their paper in PNAS. Um, it really does sound like I'm saying penis. <laughs> it, does. Um, it does every time. <laughs> awesome. Um, they uh, a paper just came out called the gene, and it's actually a pretty easily understandable title: "The Genome of Cultivated Sweet Potatoes Containing Agrobacterium tDNAs with Expressed Genes." Expressed genes—that's the key here, and we'll talk about that. An example of naturally transgenic food crop here. So. One of the most frequent issues people have with GMOs is this really vague and diffuse concern about, oh, we're putting a gene from one plant into another plant, and and this is bad, and you know it, it can't be good because that's not how you know it was done naturally, and all this sort of stuff here. Uh, but this large international team of biologists with a lot of names on this paper, um, they found that this happens naturally. As a matter of fact, it happens naturally in the sweet potato here. There's a back, uh, there's a bacteria called Agrobacterium, and uh, it has a. I hate bacterial names. Uh, it's got a. It's um. It's got pathogens in there. It, it actually. It's a. It's an, a pathogenic bacteria, I should say here. And what it will do is it will infect plants. That's what it does, and it will infect plants with its. Um, with its uh, a plasmid and it causes the plants to get tumors here. This has been happening for millions and millions of years and it's just that natural, you know, uh, swing of the pendulum between plants protecting themselves and bacteria trying to survive by putting their genes into other plants. So this is, this has been happening for a long time. But this what's interesting is that they use um, transfer DNA. Uh, Christian, you like bacteria. Do you know transfer DNA? Yep. Uh, what would you say transfer DNA does? Not to put you on the spot. Uh... Transfer DNA. Are you talking about the DNA that um, bacteria trade with each other? Uh, the, not in this case. In this case, to transfer DNA, it can be. But this is trans. What's interesting about this bacteria is that the tDNA, the transfer DNA, transfers uh, a plasmid, which is a section of its own DNA, oh, into yeah. a different organism that's not a bacteria. So same thing. It's actually kind of 
it's kind of a cool like rolling circle thing. Yep. It just circularized this section of DNA and they roll off copies of it. And uh, those go down this little tube. I don't know how the agrobacterium does it with regular plants. Um, but yeah, because normally they, 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 there's like a straw that connects two bacteria yeah, that basically cool. just spits it into the other one. Basically. Like, and what's funny is that there's actually predetermined segments of the genome that they want to transfer. Like there's a specific set of genes that are made to transfer. But a lot of times the mechanism is sloppy, so it'll take more of the original genome with it. So the genes that are transferred, quote unquote genes, or DNA segments that are transferred are a little bit random. In other, in other words, it doesn't necessarily always get the same thing transferred over. You can get variations of different genes at the end and whole genes and partial genes. You get this drift genome. in what's being transferred, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, so what's different about this and what makes this unique uh, versus any other type of, of, of versions of this we've seen in the past is that it's transferring part of its DNA not just into the cytoplasm, the, the inner part of the cell uh, of, a, uh, of a plant. It is actually sending it to the nucleus and it is inserting it into the nuclear uh, genome. So, in other words, it is permanently modifying that plant's DNA so that it gets passed on to subsequent generations. Which Bacteria and virus all the time will send a bit of DNA into the cell. It will do its thing and either kill the cell or even if it lives in the cell, it's not being passed along. It's just kind of using the, the, uh, the cell like a womb, like an incubator so it can grow, but that doesn't get passed along. This is actually passing its genes along to some, the next generation. Some viruses do, like yeah. HIV is one of those pass-along viruses. Um, right. And it's rarely a, a functioning gene, though. Well, it depends. Uh, it can be. When, you, when someone says a virus hides, like uh -huh. herpes, it hides in the nerve cell. What it's really doing is it's just inserting its genome into yours. Right. So it can, there's a code that it can turn itself on depending on what its environmental factors are, and it spits out more viruses. So there, there's a lot of mechanisms in nature for one organism to pass off genetic material to another. Well, and you've kind of hit the nail on the head here with my larger point, which I'll get to in a second here. Let me just finish the science real quick. Okay. So the gene they inserted is called uh, agrosinopene synthase. Uh, I don't say that too well simply because uh, this is a plant-specific uh, gene, and it's uh, unusual. So um, what they did is they took a whole bunch of different sweet potato plants, and they found that in all these different open reading frames, which is the part of the, the gene that actually gets read and turned into a protein, they found that this, this, uh, this bacterial uh, gene synthase was actually in the genome being rapidly expressed and it causes uh, changes in the plant's hormones and this will cause the cells to start proliferating and it causes a tumor, it's a tumor growth factor here. And um, so take it hippies, they, uh, they oh <laughs> we have functioning genes being transferred between different organisms and not just between plants, but we're talking about a bacteria to a plant and the plant's fine. It's doing fine here, and this has been happening for millions of years. You know, uh, on a side note, this—they're using this uh, fun little technique here um, uh, to, because uh, you can basically reverse engineer it, and they're actually finding that this is a very, very good way to insert a gene of interest. You could put your own gene that you're interested in into a plant. Typically, it's a little challenging. We have better tools these days, but it is challenging to put a gene in a plant right where you want it and to have it express what you want. Um, and, and it's expensive and it's time consuming and it doesn't always work right. And this might make that whole process easier. But back to Christian's point, you know, this is all occurring naturally, right? And while companies like Monsanto are shoehorning genes in that would never naturally get transferred into a plant, 
Um, this is the exact same thing being done by nature. And a lot of the people's argument, you know, uh, is that that what we're doing is not natural here, you know, and 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 they're essentially now that this has happened, I'm sure they're just going to move the goalpost, which is a term to say, well, yeah, but I understand plants do it naturally, but that doesn't really matter because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, no, your major concern was that we were putting plant, we're mixing genes around that didn't belong there, and it's completely unnatural. Um, so I think that argument's a bit moot on some level, right? Yeah, it, it's always been ridiculous because right. the definition of natural is elusive. <laughs> right. And as we've always said, uh, snake venom is natural. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't think you want to, you know, go eating that. So, and to your other point, Christian, yes, virus has been doing this for a very long time. It's not that common for a virus to insert a functioning gene into your genome. Often it's little remnants. As a matter of fact, I, we've talked about this in the past too. The way we can tell that a, you know, a giraffe might be related tangentially to a toad uh, is often because little fragments of viral uh, uh, DNA can be found, identical sequences can be found in both organisms. So you know that at some point in the evolutionary tree, they were a single organism at some point, you know. So this happens, has been happening since time immemorium. You know, there's my 10 cent word of the day. Um, <laughs> so it, it happens. So yes, get over it, you know. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be careful about what we're ramming into, you know, different plants as far as genes, but it just means that this is not something to to be innately concerned about. Can we, could I just ask real quick, since we're on the topic of GMOs, um, I just, I just feel like we have to at least mention it, this whole GMO embryo thing going on in China. That's what Christian's talking about. That is what about. I'm, which is a great segue into. We don't even need to gloss over it. We okay, got a whole God. segment on it. <laughs> and segue, Christian, go. Okay. So last week, it was last week, right? Yeah. I don't know yep. what planet I'm on. Um, last week, we talked about the idea of putting um, gene modifications into the germline. In other words, modifying the genes of a baby before it's born. And then that baby, of course, would have those genes to pass on to its offspring and so on. So you're basically changing the future of that baby's gene. And uh, that baby's babies. Yes. Right? The, the whole future of their, their, I can't, my brain just shut off, um, <laughs> reproductive life. Like everything that they have, every baby that they have has potential to have this gene and that baby then because has the potential and that baby has the potential and blah, blah, blah. And that can, you know, that could go on into infinity, although it probably wouldn't because at some point someone would get unlucky and it wouldn't get passed on. But the point is you're creating a, a, an environment in which, you know, genes of entire species can be changed in a very short period of time. And that's kind of scary. Um, and we talked about how, you know, it's it's bad. And I brought up the idea that I thought it was kind of inevitable um, just because it's kind of the way the human race goes. If, if you can make something better, even if it's a bad idea, it, it usually ends up getting done. Um, <clears throat> and we live with the consequences. There's a Chinese group who literally, while we were having that discussion, um, were publishing on doing just that, taking human embryos, which are um, single cell, basically, or a few cells, and um, they were changing the genome using this CRISPR thing, which we've talked about on the podcast before. It's just a targeted genome editing technique. 
and removing the negative gene for um, a blood cell, a blood disorder, uh, thalassemia, which thalassemia is, I believe it's a repeat problem. There's a certain, you have like too much of a specific gene, it repeats itself. Oh, like Huntington's. I actually put that on my show notes uh, as an example. Yeah, it's okay. a little bit like that. Only it's the entire gene, not just like a, seg- a section of the gene. Like the entire right. gene gets duplicated. I, it's a gene dosage issue, I think. Um, oh, it's almost like uh, there's a promoter region problem or something, and it's just making way too much of something. Yeah, yeah. And okay. I, don't, I don't know exactly how it works. I, I saw a It's bad or hurt it. you. Yeah. Right. But they're basically just chopping out that the overdose on the, on the gene. Um, now... Their their argument was well the embryos weren't viable so we didn't act, they didn't actually change anything that's going to grow into a human being um, they just wanted to see if they could do it which my response to that is duh we we know we can do that and we know we can do it in mice we've done it I mean what makes it would there's no reason it would be different right. and we're not it's surprisingly close to mice uh, even though we look and act very differently as far as our the way the cells behave right. and I made fun of not necessarily made fun of, but I called out the authors in the, the Nature paper that we discussed last week about their comment that, well, it's okay to change mitochondrial DNA because it's just a small piece and it makes everybody better. Which, at the end of an article saying we shouldn't do germline transmission genome editing, that, that comment is, is stands in opposition to that because that's the exact rationale that we're going to use for fixing genomes in the future. Um, and it's interesting that I, I started looking up some of the things that we could change that were small, but that might, you know, really cause ethical issues. And it is untrue to say that every trait you have is a single gene related trait. Um, eye color, you can change eye color with a single gene. But things like your height, height is controlled by. A few different factors. Um, things like, you know, propensity of body weight, the amount of times your heart beats every minute. I mean, a lot of these things are controlled by multiple genes, and you can't just change one gene and change that property. However, I found some interesting stuff, um, like this article here where they talk about using um, genome editing to change one or two base pairs in the whole genome and give you better test scores in school. So Mm. there is research being done to understand how individual genes do interact. And there are powerful changes that could be made in developmental genes that could change, you know, the way the whole organism develops. So it it is really a, a technology that well, I still think it's inevitable, is dangerous and problematic. Um, and I think it's the biggest problem being the whole eugenics problem. You start editing genomes till they all look the same. Everybody's going to have the same problem and everyone's going to die of the same opportunistic pathogen at some point in the future. Um, so, Right. So the question really to me is, you know, we there is always the slippery slope argument, but is there a happy medium? Can we say, yes, uh, nobody wants Huntington's disease or this blood disease. We can get rid of it, say fairly confidently that this is not going to end the human species. So maybe we should just get rid of it. And I mean, 
yes and no. There's the malaria issue where something that's bad now becomes good in a certain situation, which is the whole pathogenic destruction thing. If we start editing out things that we think are bad, and now I will, I will give you that there are some things that are probably bad enough that no matter what benefit they might impart in the future, they're worth getting rid of. But even just little things can make a big difference to people's resistance. Broken genes can actually give you resistance to things that use that gene. If you were to break the gene for the, the receptor that HIV uses to get into your cells, you're immune to HIV. So if HIV happened to be a really good virus and was killing people at a, at a really, or a bad virus and killing people at a really fast rate, that would somehow then be selective. And if we eliminate that completely, then we basically weed out of our genome the ability to adapt to that. So I think that natural variability, even when that can cause problems, is an essential function of the genome. You're actually changing one of the essential functions of the genome. So that's my little soapbox about that. But yes, I think you could change... Um, you could change a lot of things, but I don't necessarily know if changing it is going to be as bad as screening for it. Um, well, it, that's part of the slippery slope, too. Like We have talked about this in the past, especially last week, and I'll, I'll just say this one ethical issue I have with this is that I go back to the whole uh, – how who we are as a species as human beings, which is, you know, 100,000 years ago, you know, a caveman you know, don't – Email me if my timeline's way off here. We'll say 100, 200,000 years ago. Uh, took a rock, turned it into a weapon, uh, stabbed his friend's wife in the head, and took his wife, right? Like, we've been a violent and creative uh, species uh, as, as, as Homo sapiens and the whole evolution on that side. So, yes, we're very good. In my personal opinion, the fact that we had the innate ability to create weapons and to use higher logic, higher reasoning, the creation of the atomic bomb was inevitable. That sounds like a weird jump to make, but we're gonna. What we do is we keep using the intelligence that we have. We keep using the discoveries people have made before us, and we keep building upon it. We cannot help ourselves as human beings. And the end result of taking a rock and using it as a weapon ends up as a nuclear weapon or something even worse because it's just the natural evolution of thought. So, to dovetail that into what we're talking about here. It's so easy to say, like, well, we're just going to get rid of hunting disease or this blood disease or this right. and that. But that's not how human imagination works. Yeah. If we can change the genome permanently, which we are, I'm saying this, there's not really nothing we can do about it at this point because we are going in this direction. We are going to do massive changes to ourselves. There's going to be crazy yeah. Frankenstein people out there, and it's going to be – it might ultimately be our downfall as a, as in a worst-case scenario as a population. In the same sense that nuclear weapons could have and might be our ultimate downfall as a population because – uh, they have the ability to kill the whole earth. This may just be a different version of a nuclear bomb that we don't even know. As a matter of fact, it might even be more dangerous because a lot of people don't even see it as dangerous. Well, and, uh, and so here's here's the biggest problem. And I, this was in that article about the Chinese group. It, it's great. We could say that that's not allowed. You're not allowed to modify your genome. But if you can do it, somebody is going to. And yes. then you have a situation where people who have a lot of money and can get around regulations by going to another country where those regulations are ignored for cash, um, or in this country where it's ignored for cash, then you have only the people who are willing to break the law having these super smart babies, which in a way gets around the whole 
sterilization of the genome problem because only certain people are going to have it, but then that becomes the ethical tariff, the terrifyingly unethical problem. Like, Indeed. if everybody gets it, it's not necessarily unethical. It's just a bad idea. But if, <laughs> right. but if only people who are willing to flout the regulations get it, which is a more likely scenario. But isn't that kind of the way things are now already? I mean, not, obviously not with, with this particular issue, but, I mean, people are always doing something that's not ethical or not legal to get ahead. Right. And that's going to be the problem if you have people producing superhumans through that process. Like, you flout the law. You don't just get a bag of meth. You create mm -hmm. a superhuman. Then, now, whose fault is that? Well, that's the parent's fault. So what do you do with the kid? The kid's 15 now and super smart and excelling in everything, and he's super athletic, and he's all of these things in this, you know, utopian future. What do you do? Do you arrest him? Like, <laughs> you have to just yeah, let him go. And so everyone on, that does it go is going to have kids who are immune to being punished for this who then can just be let go. Yeah, but to your argument, like, so it's inevitable that these changes are going to come. We are going to make these superhumans at some point. Maybe it's good that we make it illegal not only to slow the progress of it, but on top of that, um, we are building a brake system into this whole process, which is – only the ultra wealthy, only the really, they may initially be the only people who can get it. But, uh, and so the whole world's not changing at once. They're kind of like a test subject. They'll be our canary in the coal mine, mm -hmm. right? They'll, they'll say, and then if it works out really well, well then yes, unfortunately they have the advantage, uh, because they, <laughs> they're all the smart ones, but that will get passed along down once we've proven it's safe. They're becoming, they're almost like an unwitting or an opposite of that. They're actually a very willing, uh, subgroup of people who are going to be guinea pigs. So, uh, I don't know, maybe it's good. Yeah, and maybe you know, maybe maybe it'll just come up, come back to bite them. Maybe it just won't work out, and we'll see the the wealthy, rich people doing the unethical, illegal thing. Or yeah, gonna get maybe they'll get out. so smart they'll uh -huh. just kill themselves because they realize there's no point. You know what I mean? Like there's like yeah. something weird like that happens when you get too smart. It, it could end up in like an, a weird inbreeding problem. Like the smart people would reproduce with the smart people, and then they would really suffer the consequences of having a. a lack of genetic diversity so i don't know indeed so um i think we'll put a bow on this except for did you uh i i can mention it if you if you haven't looked at this yet because when i when i read the article have you seen how they actually did this before the science behind it of the crispr sequence of this crispr editing that they, they did yeah i mean i know what crispr does uh -huh. um and i know that they didn't get a whole lot of success um but i didn't go like i didn't know if, i don't know if they did something specifically unique yeah, um, since this is a science podcast, just yeah, what the heck? like in, in 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 three sentences, I can say, or if you want to, you can. Uh, but right. I, I can talk about CRISPR too. Did you want to? Did you? I'm going to put you me. on the spot, Scott. Why don't you okay. tell us about CRISPR today? <laughs> okay, uh, and I'll do. I really will do this very briefly. The idea is that it's very hard to put a gene into to either remove a gene or to put a new gene in exactly where you want. And it's something as even with the plants, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of work. Well, what they found out was it's called CRISPR editing. It's brand new. It's been out for a few years and it's all the hot rage right now. Um, when a virus infects a bacteria, the bacteria has a natural uh, defense towards this. And uh, it creates these little uh, short RNA sequences that the bacteria does that will bind to the viral DNA. Now, when these the short sequence that the bacteria makes binds to the DNA, um, there's something, uh, the, uh, an enzyme in the bacteria comes along called Cas9, and it will bind to where that small RNA bound to, and it will cut the uh, viral 
um, DNA in half. It's just going to slice it in half. It's basically coming in like a pair of scissors and killing it, right? And now the virus can't replicate and the, the bacteria has done a job to protect itself. Well, some smart people came along and they found that, well, if you make your own small RNAs, and then you take this Cas9, and you can do this in human cells. You put that Cas9 enzyme in a human cell, and this is what these people in in, um, in China did. You put the Cas9 in there. You put these small synthetic small RNAs in, and this small RNA is going to bind to whatever, in this case, that blood uh, virus or that blood uh, uh, gene that they were worried about. It will bind to that. Cas9 will come along. It's going to snip it. Now, when the body tries to repair itself, uh, it will make a lot of errors, and if you do it enough... Uh, it's going to stop that gene from functioning. So that's great. So you can stop the gene from functioning. The other thing you can do is that you can snip it there and using a different enzyme, you can come along and you can insert a gene right where you want it. The big advantage of this is that generally it is much more specific to where you insert it. You can't just insert a random old gene anywhere in your 3 billion base pair genome and have it do what it's supposed to do. It needs to be in a very specific place. And, and CRISPR is very good at targeting that. It's not perfect. There are errors that are made, as Christian said. Uh, uh, it took a lot of tries, but it's way better than what we had before. And we're really getting to the point where we can completely just knock out a gene entirely, very specifically, or insert a new gene where we want it and have it do what it's supposed to do. And CRISPR is kind of this really huge leap in science that you probably haven't heard of. So It is. There, there's a lot of different ways that CRISPR can be modified to get around the nonspecific targeting problem. But anytime you use short RNA... Right. to target the genome, there, there's bound to be in a billion base pairs, there's bound to be that sequence or something close enough to that sequence somewhere else. So you do get a lot of off-targeting problems with, with CRISPR. And you can't make that short RNA sequence too long or that Cas9 protein which snips the DNA, it won't bind to it. Right. You're very limited. And I don't remember how many base pairs it is, but it's not a lot. Yeah, it's, and as Christian said, you will get non-specific targeting, but it's a lot better than what we were doing before. Yeah. And it's very easy to do. And they have, of course, come up with ways, like sort of cre cool, intuitive ways to get around that um, and and make it work better. So, so anyways, um, awesome. Thanks, Christian. Hello. Carolina, Hi. what should I eat in theory if I was going to go work out today, which I probably won't? Oh, I know I won't. It's way too windy for that. Um, but a while ago, we had talked about marathon nutrition, like what to eat before and after a long run. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about what to eat before and after a workout for, um, I guess, just the, the average length workout. Um, maybe just for, for exercising for about an hour, whether it's aerobic activity, some high intensity stuff, some strength training or anything like that. Um, so the first thing that's important to know is exactly what energy systems your body uses when you exercise. And this was pretty fascinating to me. Um, in college, when I took my exercise physiology class, it was one of my favorite classes I took at UNR. Um, so your body stores some ATP in your blood. Um, it stores about 100 grams or about three ounces of ATP in your blood. And that's that's the fastest um, energy store. We have 100 store. grams of ATP in our blood at any time? Yes. It's, it's actually, that is a fun fact. I did not know it's, that. It's pretty freaking incredible. Like in the average day just uh, doing whatever you're doing, you are producing about 75% of your body weight of ATP or converting about 70% of your body weight in ATP. Wow. And if you're running a marathon, they say that it's about 80 kilograms worth, <laughs> which is freaking insane if you think about that. So anyway, so all of that ATP, all 100 grams, gets used up within the first five seconds of you exercising. 
And it's a very fast energy wow. system, but it doesn't last you very long. So um, the next next step would be the phosphocreatine system, which phosphocreatine um, can regenerate the ADP to ATP um, in an anaerobic setting. And that, that happens very quickly. Um, but that can only... And that's why people take creatine when they work out, right? They want ATP availability. Yes, exactly. Uh -huh. And so you can, the, the more you train, you can you can build up your phosphocreatine system a little bit, like maybe by 20%, but not a whole lot. And and this this system is pretty important for people who are doing like sprint events, like maybe doing a 100-meter sprint. But your phosphocreatine... That was my specialty in college. Oh, nice. That is completely inaccurate. <laughs> That's that's the sound I make when I lie. A very, a very <laughs> sorry. You make that sound a lot, Scott. Oh. <laughs> but anyway, the, the phosphocreatine will only fuel your exercise for another five to seven seconds after that. So really, total, you have about uh, ten to twelve seconds worth of ATP and phosphocreatine available. After that, you still need ATP, but the next fastest energy source is going to be um, glycolysis which is going to take a glycogen from your muscles primarily. It's going to use up some glucose from your blood and some glycogen from your liver as well. And so this kicks in, and it's the main energy source used at about 90 seconds into exercise. So if you think about sprinting, you're only going to be able to keep an all-out pace for maybe 10 to 12 seconds, and then you're going to slow down a bit, and you're eventually going to reach basically kind of like a steady steady pace where you're using um is this where the carbo loading comes in? Yes. With the glycogen? Yes. So, so let me tell you a little bit more about how much glycogen and blood glucose you have. Your body has about 25 grams of blood glucose, so really a lot less than ATP. You have about 400 grams of glycogen in your muscles and about 100 grams of glycogen in your liver. So your body is primarily going to use the muscle glycogen just because it's right there at the site of your skeletal muscle. Then secondary is going to be blood glucose, but that's going to be replenished and tried, you know, your body's obviously going to try to keep blood glucose very at a very um, even level. And then finally, it'll rely on liver glycogen. So all of your glycogen and glucose stores are basically going to last you about two hours. Could be longer depending on your pace. Um, but a lot of- I find I like to carb a load even when I'm not working out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's- I find <laughs> It's very effective at, at, as a sleeping pill. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. Well, and, and carbo loading has been shown to work pretty well. You know, if you if you do have a big event coming up, a, a big race or something, then if you take um, about three days of rest beforehand and increase your carbohydrate intake um, a bit in those days leading up to the event, you can basically max out your glycogen stores. And the more you exercise, the more capacity your body has for storing glycogen. Sorry, I tuned out there. You said I should not work out for three days in carbo-load? That's all I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the big takeaway today. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, the, the, this is the reason why a lot of marathoners kind of hit that wall is they'll, they can essentially run out of their stored glycogen. And then the last energy system or the, the, basically the last energy source available is uh, fat, which you have essentially an unlimited amount of in your body, but it's also a very slow energy system. Um, so fatty acid oxidation, it, it doesn't kick in two hours into exercise. It actually is used, you start using it about 90 seconds into exercise. And depending on the intensity of your exercise, you're either going to primarily be using glycogen or primarily be using fats. Is it the runner's wall when you run out of glycogen? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty much what's been what's thought to cause that. 
And it, it, you can kind of try to prevent that a bit by pacing yourself and also by taking, you know, so the, those little like goo packs and trying to refuel a little bit the glucose as you run. Um, so eating something while you're running a marathon can help with that. But your body's still going to preferentially going to be using the glycogen that you have in your muscle. And I don't think it's very realistic to replenish that super quickly while you're running. So a lot of people who refuel are still going to hit some kind of a wall. Um, okay. So, so if you're exercising really, really hard at maximum intensity, you're primarily going to be using glycolysis. You'll primarily be burning, um, carbohydrates. And if you're working out at a lower intensity, um, they, they measure this basically by VO2 max or your, uh, basically percentage of your maximum aerobic capacity. Um, if you're lower, uh, if you're working out at a lower intensity, you're primarily burning fat, but, um, the more you exercise, the more you train, the better your body is at using fat for fuel. It'll preferentially kind of do an even split between carbohydrate and fat use in all types of exercise. Um, and the very last resort is protein as a fuel source, but that your body typically doesn't use protein for energy while you're exercising, unless you've been going for like three to five hours, then maybe about 2% of the energy you're using is coming from amino acids. Two to five hours. Oh my God. Is that insane? <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically, those are the energy systems used. Um, and the most, the two most important, well, I guess I should say three, three most important components of a pre or a post-workout meal are carbohydrates, protein, and fluids. Um, fat is generally not recommended pre or post workout because it can slow down digestion and it's going to slow down the rate at which you can replenish your muscle stores. And fiber is typically not recommended, especially not before a workout because it can cause some GI distress. So, um, if you're going to eat something before a workout, you should do it um, at least an hour before, maybe more. If you're going to have a meal three to four hours before a workout, it can be a bigger meal. Um, generally for both pre and post workout, the recommendation is to do a ratio of two to one or three to one of carbohydrates to protein. Um, so if you're going to do, let me back up a little bit. Okay. So over the course of an entire day, if you're somebody who exercises regularly, um, like if you basically consider yourself fairly active, maybe be working out five days a week, um, doing either endurance training or re resistance training, your protein needs go up from the RDA. Um, the average person, the minimum requirement of protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. But if you're exercising, that goes up to somewhere between 1.2 to 1.6 grams per kilogram. And it could be as much as 1.9 grams per kilogram or essentially almost one gram of protein per pound of body weight at the most. Wow. Yeah. Um, so if you break that up throughout the day, your, your body's going to better absorb that protein and use it for muscle building and muscle recovery. Um, if you spread it out pretty evenly, your body's going to be able to absorb, uh, the, the range is generally considered to be somewhere between 30 and 40 grams of protein at a time. So ideally, if you're going to have a meal pre-workout or post-workout, you should aim to get somewhere between 30 and 40 grams of protein in there. Um, pre-workout. Oh, sorry. sorry. Go on. What is, what is that in terms of like food? Amount. Is that a, a big chicken breast? Is that, yeah, what is, is that it? like a piece of chicken if, or something? Okay. So if you're looking at like some kind of a, a lean meat, like chicken, turkey, fish, or a lean cut of meat, that's going to be um, three ounces is about 21 grams of protein. Okay. Okay. So six ounces. That's a that's a, a decent-sized chicken breast. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh-huh. But yeah, um, and so that's going to be more important post-workout for muscle recovery. But it's also a good idea to get some protein in before your workout, so that way it'll help protect your muscles and basically. Um, it, it, so some research has shown that it helps prevent muscle soreness after a workout if you get a little bit. Um, most important thing before a workout is going to be carbs, though, because carbs will top off your glycogen stores. And the sooner you do it before the workout, the better. So three to four hours before is a good idea. Um, and keeping that um, that ratio in mind, that two to one or three to one ratio, if you're getting 30 grams of protein in, you should be aiming for somewhere between 60 and 90 grams of carbohydrate. And what that would look like, so let's say typically a half a cup of any kind of a cooked grain like pasta, rice, um, something else starchy like potato or corn or oatmeal, um, half a cup is about 15 grams worth of carbohydrate. So we're looking at um, probably about two cups worth. Okay. Yeah. Something like that. Or you could do toast with jam. You could do a smoothie with some fruit. Um, lots of different options here. If the, Just taking a look at like certain foods that um, make for really good pre-workout or post-workout snacks. Um, beans just naturally have a three-to-one ratio of carbs to protein. Quinoa has a four-to-one ratio. Um, lentils have a two-to-one. Um, yogurt's about the same, too. So all, and, and that's why they also say that chocolate milk is a really good recovery drink because a low fat chocolate milk has about a, a three to one or four to one, depending on uh, the type you pick. With Kahlua, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> of course, of course. Actually, I think that beer is probably a pretty good recovery drink because it's pretty high. Oh my card. God. <laughs> Sounds terrifying. Chug a beer after a workout. Oh, but anyway, so yeah, so so I, before workout, you want to you want to do it not too close to the start of your exercise. Um, some people don't like to eat before a workout. I typically work out first thing in the morning, and actually, the way your body's energy systems are going to work is is going to be about the same, regardless of whether you eat or not, whether you're fasted or not. Your body's still going to use about the same percentage of calories from fat and glycogen. Regardless, so you're not doing yourself any favors necessarily by not eating something. It's not like magically going to make you burn more fat, but it's also not necessarily going to slow you down very much. Um, if your glycogen stores are completely depleted, then you know that's that's your fastest acting energy system, so you might have a little less intensity. But if you're just doing you know kind of an average workout, it shouldn't make too much of a difference for you. Well, I'm pleased to report that I I more or less have the endurance runners. A diet down oh, wonderful. without the endurance running, but I, I'm close. I mean, that's like a that's silver lining, right? You got to take, you know, look at the bright side. There you go. So basically, what you're saying is you eat some pasta before and drink some beer after. Yep, and uh, some meat, um, and I make sure I have enough calories uh, to uh, to sustain me for long uh, endurance training. Mm-hmm. I just don't do the endurance runs. Okay, one last thing. So we talked a little bit about pre-workout, post-workout. Generally, it's considered that there's this anabolic window. Um, Basically, it's a a time frame after your workout that your body is going to be more um, likely to store um, to store energy as glycogen and as um, protein in your muscles. And there's a lot of debate over how long this window is. Some people say you should try to eat or drink something immediately after working out. Other people say that um, you're still going to replenish your glycogen stores and you're still going to repair your muscles if you're eating something two to three hours after a workout. Um, so I would say, you know, maybe to for, for maximum benefit, if you, if you can stomach it, try to have something pretty quickly after you work out. Um, 
And so the idea is when, when you eat something, whether it's protein or just protein or protein with carbohydrates, it's going to um, increase your insulin a little bit. And insulin is going to help the, those nutrients get to your muscles and to your, uh, to your glycogen stores in your liver and your muscles. I've really fallen in love with these Luna bars. I actually had one for breakfast this morning. It's got nine grams of protein, three grams of fiber. It's got this uh, uh, the the ratio you want, and it they taste like delicious. And I love it on the on the front. It goes whole nutrition bar made specifically for women. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I didn't know some foods were meant for women, but uh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, awesome. Thanks, Carolina. Oh, of course. Awesome. Yeah. I just want to point I, out on the air that like. 75 to 80 percent of the things that carolina says i put into practice almost immediately Aww, <laughs> i know I'm right like, taking notes i'm like oh my gosh okay so i'm gonna work out i'm gonna eat a protein bar and then i'm gonna <laughs> and you can get lots of those good ratios she's talking about on her blog carolina's kitchen it's insane and you just put up that uh that uh, bell pepper. what was it a bell pepper stuffed with uh turkey and all that kind of fun stuff yes Delicious. Yes, I haven't had a chance to make it yet, but it is on the to-do yeah, list. I'm very it'll excited. It'll take you less than 30 minutes. Awesome. Yay. <laughs> uh, did you? I just saw an article that said that 25% of Americans are completely and utterly sedentary. Wow. As in, they walk to the couch, they walk to the car, they walk to a chair they sit in at work, and they go home. That 25% of Americans, that is the extent of their exercise is moving their ass to a couch into a chair. Wow. So, good time. You but you know what's amazing? You're using most of your... ATP just in the process of getting up from your chair and walking over to the fridge. <laughs> just, that, just that one action. <laughs> it almost seems like an all-out sprint. Well, thank you, Carolina. Thank you. Awesome. All right. We are 50 minutes in. Um, Tell me about multivitamins. Can... Okay. Yes. And it will be actually, I can I can literally do both in less than five minutes and we'll be well under an hour. So I'll do them both. Okay. Um, multivitamins. Okay. So it's actually, well, this is a fun lesson too, which is... Um, uh, so I'll read the thing, and then you tell me if you see any problems. Uh, a forum of the American Association for Cancer Research. They had their annual meeting in 2015. This was happened just recently at the University of Colorado Cancer Center. And uh, investigator Tim Bryce, he's an MD, as well as a master's in public health. He described uh, research using a large metadata analysis that uh, using a lot of over-the-counter supplements may actually increase your cancer risk if they're taken in excess. Uh, one trial exploring the effects of they, they found one that, that looked at beta carotene supplements showed that taking more of the rec more than the recommended dose increased the risk for developing both lung and heart disease by 20 percent. Folic acid, which is thought to help to reduce the number of polyps in, uh, in, in, in your colon, actually increased the number in, in another trial they looked at here. And it was a large metadata analysis here. Um, so. I won't put you guys on the spot, but there's two things here that should be noted. A, and this is something that when you listen to the news, they don't talk about. This was a forum in which someone gave a talk about some research they're doing. We, people, this is done every day. It's collaboration through science. It's working with the people in your field, and it's highly important to go to these things. But this is not a pu paper published in a peer-reviewed journal. This is someone talking about some interesting stuff. It got published because, well, taking multivitamin cancer is a pretty, you know, interesting headline to put out there. But this is not something that you should be using as an action item in your everyday life here because it's just some guy talking about some stuff he's looking at right now. Uh, the backbone of science is is the peer review process here. 
Um, also, it's a metadata analysis, which means they're looking for correlations. They're looking, if you do this, this happens. And when you do these together, something else happens. But it's not causal. It's not saying that taking the multivitamin is giving you cancer. There may be other third factors or other variables that give you the cancer that people take lots of extra the vitamins tend to also do in conjunction with taking the vitamins. I've always said that taking a lot of vitamins doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Um, if you're malnourished, that's one thing, but we typically get most of the, di the vitamins we need in the diet. And if you take a little bit of extra vitamins, it's probably not going to do anything. But anytime you flush your system with a lot of anything, it doesn't matter what it is, bad things are going to happen. So yes, taking taking enough beta carotin that would be in like 6,300 carats uh, all at one time, your body's going to be like, what's going on, man? It's not going to cure anything. It's probably going to hurt things. So that's my thoughts on that. Any other input so bottom line is they say that you should not take any vitamins in excess uh absolutely don't take them in excess they say um or at least in this couple that they were looking at here you know they only the only two they talked about directly were folic acid and beta carotene but the idea is that try not to take anything in mass excess uh if if possible and uh but also again this was not a peer-reviewed mm -hmm. paper this is someone okay. talking at a pulpit for a little bit here so it's interesting initial findings it is not uh something that that we've proven wonderful yet, so. i mean my i typically don't recommend multivitamins for for my patients just and, and i mostly based that off of the the nurse's health study where they basically tracked uh something like eighty thousand. i think it was eighty thousand. it could have been more nurses and they those who took multivitamins had no reduced incidence of chronic disease later in life right and uh in fact, I think there was like some slightly increased risk for certain diseases. Yeah, and these studies are coming out more and more often showing these sort of things. And Dharma likes to take, my wife likes to take um, a multivitamin, and she always asks me, well, should I buy And I said, you know, it's probably not going to hurt you, but these multivitamins tend to have a lot of extra of what the daily recommended dose is, and especially in the water-soluble ones. They don't go too overboard with the fat-soluble because you can actually really hurt yourself if you way overdo it with fat-soluble because it stays in your system so long. You tend to, your kidneys tend to flush out most of the excess water-soluble vitamins you take. But I'm just like, hey, here's the deal. Just like, it says here's a daily multivitamin. Great. Take it once a week. You're still getting a lot of the stuff in you, and if you are deficient in any of these, it's going to help bump that up and keep it at a, a reasonable level. But, yeah, you don't need to be doing it every single day. Um, I should note that I am not a medical physician, and this is not considered medical advice. <laughs> I also come with that disclaimer sticker. <laughs> Um, as a matter of fact, yeah, uh, other than Carolina, who is a registered dietitian, you should probably not listen to anything we say to do on the show. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Wow. There you go. Way to take um, it all back, Scott. Indeed. <laughs> Don't listen to anything we say. Uh, so there's that. And then this last one is also really cool. And it's just like two seconds. Um, so if you have, it doesn't happen very often. Okay. Two but seconds. But occasionally, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often. But occasionally, a crime will be committed, uh, DNA will be collected, and it will trace back to a set of identical twins who even live in the same city, possibly. It is. Normally, the DNA slam dunk of you're going to jail for the rest of your life uh, all of a sudden becomes a conundrum that um, it is very difficult to use in a court of law. Well, some enterprising young researchers found out, which is pretty interesting, is that you know you can do some really complex, expensive genetic tests, and you might be able to find little single-point mutations uh, within the whole genome, and it's, it's really expensive, it's time-consuming, and, uh, and, and it's typically not used. But they found a very simple way that you can generally tell genetic twins apart using only their DNA. 
as you know, your uh, the two strands of your DNA are held together. They're not covalent. They're not permanent connections. It uses hydrogen bonding, the same thing that keeps water sticking together. And it can, when you replicate your DNA and all these things, they can easily be pulled apart and kind of like magnets, they come right back together. Well, the temperature, when you cut up these segments of DNA and you have all these little double-stranded DNA fragments in a solution, the temperature at which uh, you, if you raise the temperature, eventually those segments are going to break apart. And it, you can tell very accurately the amount of energy needed, the temperature, exact specific temperature you need to break these DNA strands apart. What they found out was that based on these modifications uh, to your genes, or not, not, I'm, not, the, not the sequence itself, but if they're acetylated or if they're methylated, all these different little things that can bind to and change your DNA without actually changing the ATCG sequence, that will affect the temperature at which the genes break apart. And a lot of these methylations and these other things that, 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 that um, occur after, after you're born are because of your environmental factors, the food you eat, the cigarettes you smoke, or whatever the case may be, and they're completely independent between the two twins. So you can take twin A and twin B, chop up their DNA a bit, put it in a solution, heat it up, measure the temperature at which the DNA starts breaking apart, and they will actually be two different temperatures. Now, it might be a hundredth of a degree, but it's enough that they can actually distinguish between the two, and so you can take that that uh, the DNA found at the scene, you can compare it to, you can melt that, you can compare it to the, 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 the two twins, and voila, it's a very inexpensive and fairly easy test to do to determine uh, which twin did it. So Wow. Or to cool. determine which twin didn't do it. Oh, look at, you should, you should be an advocate for the wrongfully accused. Seriously, that, the, the whole DNA thing, it's terrible. The, the way we structure court things is terrible. Eyewitness yeah, well, accounts that. are literally the worst possible evidence you can put in, and it's the most quote-unquote believable. Well, and then the FBI just came out. They admitted that for 25 years. Did you see that? Yes, yep, I that's did. exactly that's what I'm referencing. <laughs> Even the science. If you haven't seen this, do either of you want to say what it was? Go ahead. No? Just go ahead. <laughs> I just feel like I've been talking a lot. Uh, it. it they had admitted that the the science they had used to compare hair samples between uh, and, and they'd been used in courts of law uh, to say this hair sample matches up with the with the person being charged with the crime was largely bullshit. Excuse my language there. And 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 it wasn't very accurate. And they often would say things that they knew not to be perfectly accurate. And people were convicted on this. Not only is it going to turn over a bunch of convictions, I'm sure, but uh, it, we're going to it's going to cost millions of dollars in restitution to these people who had oh, been God. wrongly convicted. And it's just a complete nightmare. And on top of that, it completely it's a black eye to the scientific community, even though the scientists didn't do anything wrong. It was just the way they, the protocols of the FBI. And, uh, and it, and also makes the justice system seem a little funky. So it's just bad all around. And it's really annoying. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Ridiculous. Listener, uh, Catalin, uh, I didn't say I was going to mention her on the air, so I won't say her last name here, but, uh, she said, uh, essentially, um, Appreciate the jokes at the end of the show, but you guys uh, need to step up your game, and I have some better jokes for you. Oh, so she sent nice. us, um, she sent them there. Uh, oh, Christian, I'll do. We'll each do one today, and then we'll we'll call it a day. Christian, here is your link. Carolina already has her link. Um, oh God, I'll do the first one on the list here. Are you guys ready for your bad science joke of the day? Ready. What is the fastest way to determine the sex of a chromosome? What? Pull down its genes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, they're just as bad, uh, but there's lots of them. Yeah, there are. 
Dang it. Skype's freaking out. It's not letting me click on the link. No. Scott, tell mine. <laughs> How dare you? Um, let's see. I think we should skip number three. Oh no. <laughs> no, say it Christian. No, say it. No, I am not going to. That is I'm going to say yeah, it cuz you funny. get to say that. That's terrifying. All right. <laughs> How do you make a hormone? Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> I, you, it, you're okay, already there. Listen, that's enough. Yeah, you're already there. It's awful. You, I told him don't say it. You don't pay her. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. Not bad. <laughs> All right. Uh, Christian, uh, why don't you do one and we'll call it a day. Um why did what did one cell say to his sister cell when she stepped on his toe? Hmm? Itosis. Uh, <laughs> I to pick the worst one I could find. We have to we have to somehow give you, them something to eat. You succeeded admirably, sir. In your joke. <laughs> oh man. Well, good show, everyone. Don't forget to go listen to the new episode of Poison Cast. If you go there now and look for Mustard Gas, it might not be there, but it will be at some point today on Sunday, April 26th. So uh, enjoy. It's got a little bit of a different opening, and you may wonder what the heck's going on, but uh, it's all for a very good reason. So, Hey, and I'll, uh, I'll, Scott, I'm going to send you a link to some fact sheets about what to eat before and after exercise with some meal ideas for that. It will be at betasandwich.com. Click on today's episode. Awesome. All right. Bye.